We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Soft Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome back to the Truth Perspective Behind the Headlines show this Sunday, two days before the U.S. presidential election. It is Sunday, November the 6th, and I'm your host, Elon Martin. With me in the studio today is Harrison Kelly. Hi, everyone. And across the pond, we have with us, joining us, SOT editors, Jason Martin, Joe Quinn, Hi there. And Neil Bradley. Hey, everyone. So, Jason, you can say hello now. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't realize I was allowed to speak. Yeah. We took the, we took the duct tape off. <laughs> they, they've got me trapped in the basement. My, my hands are tied behind my back. I'm, they're, they're holding me hostage. Well, we'll want your input today, Jason. So keep the duct well, tape. Well, they're telling me that I can't vote for oh. Trump now. and uh, <laughs> That's why you're tied uh, up. <laughs> We need to make America great again, and they keep, you know. His, his vote was going to swing it. My, my vote was going to swing it, and now the Donald isn't going to get in because I couldn't vote. Well, on, on that terrible. subject, uh, as everyone knows, today's topic of conversation is the election. Um, it Ooh. is a. Yeah. Yay! There is a whole kind of crazy making nature about this whole election that I thought we might begin discussing. Um, for myself, I was kind of done paying attention to it about eight months ago. We had an article online on SOT by Andrew Vlicek, uh, Andre Vlicek, uh, and the title of which was something like, Enough About the U.S. Elections Already. This was like eight months ago, maybe, maybe more, maybe even closer to a year. But... Uh, you know, this whole thing is, it's something like a kind of a, a car wreck. It's, it's monstrous, it's horrifying, but it's fascinating. And you can't turn away from it. You feel compelled to look at it. Maybe part of the reason is because it's so sensational, but definitely in part because everybody feels that on some level there are a lot of ramifications connected to it, uh, whether they get elected or selected. Uh, as we like to say, or as we see it. Anyway, it's like a part of me um, that's really entertained by the show uh, is also at the same time uh, feeling a bit of apprehension about the whole thing. Um, there's all this chaos surrounding it, and this election seems to be a conduit uh, for chaos in the U.S., thing of it is that up until now, as I mentioned, we're quite used to thinking of elections in terms of who the deep state or the elite has chosen to select and why they're doing it. When we think of uh, Obama being elected. Well, I mean, on that particular topic, I think maybe it could be. I'm sorry. Did I, did I talk over you? Well, I, oh, yeah. let me just so make I'm, a couple of more quick points, Jason, and then and then oh, jump right in because it's all leading choo, to choo, something. Choo. And and. Um, I hope it's I hope it's worth mentioning, but here it goes. 
just on the point of Obama being selected in 08, we knew that he was selected as a kind of uh, pressure valve release after the Bush administration. Uh, you know, he had this kind of incredible veneer of uh, progressiveness, and, and people thought that he would correct those things that the Bush administration was uh, responsible for. Um, and we can now sort of see that if Trump is elected or selected, that he might be that a similar answer to the Obama administration uh, in the way that Obama was to the Bush administration. But at the same time, I'm wondering uh, if on some level of control, the, the, the bottom line goal is just to instill chaos, fear, and dread into the American populace, period. So I guess my question is, you know, to what extent is this whole election an attempt to just divide people further and stress out the American public? Or is this just a kind of a natural reflection of the state of the U.S. right now? Um, we had an article recently on SOT. Will Americans need psychological help with the election results? So, yeah, I just thought that might be a, an interesting point of departure. But, uh, you know, certainly, Jason, if you, you were starting to make a point there, maybe you wanted to. Well, I mean, on the topic of psychological help, I mean, there's definitely a, a section of American society that is. Uh, can you guys hear me? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a is a section of American society that has uh, become deeply entrenched in this sort of anxiety ridden, nail biting, offense taking uh, sort of culture of grievance and complaint and sort of microaggressions and all that stuff. So I think that that part of the population certainly is going to require quite a lot of therapy. And, uh, and I think they should pay for it themselves actually um, on the topic of this whole deep state idea. I think that maybe if such a thing is true, and you never know if anything's specifically true, but you might think that it's true. You have to imagine that such people probably are, are very bored unless there's something interesting and risky about the game. You know, a game uh, is only fun when you can possibly lose or win or there's some sort of point system. So I think that there's probably a little bit more uh, freedom and, and wiggle room in, in politics and society that a lot of people give credit for. I don't think that there's this whole uh, cold calculating architect to everything. I really think that it's, it's probably sort of a game between factions and stuff like that. I mean, if you were to to imagine such a scenario, I don't think that it would organize itself as some sort of, you know, puritanical central authority that's, you know, has one unified program. It's probably a lot of people with a lot of different ideas about how things should be run and it probably changes over time. And that's probably why it looks so chaotic. I mean, just to to speak to that whole deep state idea. Yeah. And there's an element of risk to it, like you're saying. So it's not, uh, I, I kind of tend to lean the same way in, in that it's, I have a, I have a hard time seeing everything as being this micromanaged staged managed thing that's going on. There's, there are, you know, contingencies and things that happen that need to be reacted to. And sure, there are, there are people who are extremely powerful who then um, make decisions and react and conspire, you know, we'll use that word, to, to get things to go their way. But, um, but it's this game of reacting to whatever happens. And I think, I think you're probably right that there is this, um, there has to be an element of, of risk to it to keep it interesting. And uh, um, just to make it fun, I mean, imagine if, 
playing a poker game where there's no stakes. You know, it's really boring. I mean, Monopoly is the best when there's a side bet, you know, who's going to win. You know, nobody really wants to play these games where there's there's no outcome. No one knows who's better, especially in like a, an STS, a, a kind of a self-serving system. It's really driven by this pyramidal idea of getting to the top. And then the people who are kind of at the top are still kind of clawing for, for favor and for prestige and, and, and a kind of a, a relative wealth. Like even the top 1% are always competing with each other for who's the most 1% of the 1%, you know, kind of infinitely. So uh, I don't think that imagining, I think that if I were in their position, you know, I always kind of think like, what would I do? And if I were designing the system, I would want to design a game that would be kind of fun to play. And I, I wouldn't just, you know, I would want a little bit of, you know, give and take going on. It always freaks people out when I say like, if I were in their position, they're like, what? You would do that? And I was like, well, I'm just sort of like thinking from their perspective here for a second, trying to understand how they would how they would plot or plan it out. So, yeah, I, I don't believe in the fatalist, deterministic view of life, you know, where like everything is so completely predetermined, mm -hmm. you know, even from like a material science perspective or from a conspiracy perspective, that everything is so predetermined that there's almost no point in even doing anything because, you know, you can't make any choices, you can't have any effect on the system. And I, and I think that people have too much, they look at life like a roulette game. And if you go into the casino and you play roulette, of course the odds are against you. The stats are against you. You can't really win. The house always wins. But I think there's a little bit more of a poker element to to reality where there is kind of a game that, that, that is being played on a political stage, as horrifying as you may think that is or not. And, and then I think that people can do comparatively well or bad and there are choices to be made and there are effects that can happen and changes in direction based on the feelings of the people in society, which I think is kind of what we're seeing with, with the Donald Trump campaign and Hillary Clinton. And I think that there's a certain aspect of that. By the same token, if you look at all the kind of world events and uh, geostrategic maneuvers that are being made by the U S uh, there is this sense that, there is this kind of um, this agent of chaos uh, at work in the form of uh, U.S. government. Uh, whatever they touch would seem to affect uh, whatever countries it uh, it decides to intervene in, or or policies just seem to almost a hundred percent of the time work to screw up things badly. So well, that's kind of what you expect with pathology, though, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not a, it's not rocket science, really. But it is conceptually for a lot of people, it may as well be rocket science because you're asking people to believe people who fundamentally believe in the goodness and rightness of their of their authorities. You're asking them to believe that those authorities are not good and not right. Uh, they don't have anybody's best interest. They only have their in their own interests uh, at heart so it's like I mean I was uh, on a little kind of debate show on Press TV a couple of days ago with uh, some guy some American guys some minuscule think tank kind of person or something and he made reference to Hillary's adventure in uh, in Libya as being a mistake and I was just I didn't get a chance to say anything immediately well I'm not sure if I did or not, but anyway, when he said that, I 
I just couldn't help kind of laughing. Actually, I don't think anybody heard, heard me laughing, but I was laughing at him because uh, the idea that, the, that that's that's the the explanation all the time. Oh, I made a mistake when uh, it's not a mistake what Hillary did and what the US, what NATO did in, in Libya. They obviously weren't well documented that they wanted to get rid of Gaddafi uh, for several reasons, probably the primary one being access to oil and gas resources and various different you kind know, of geopolitical uh, strategy reasons. So they just trumped up uh, the same old reason that he's a brutal dictator killing his own people and that we have to go and free the Libyan people. So they go in, they bomb, bomb the place and kill up to 40,000 people and then just leave, just walk away, you know. They, they, they let it fall apart afterwards because, you know, yeah, we wrecked it, but it's not our job to fix it. I mean, we just wanted to wreck it. We wanted to get rid of the existing system and uh, allow, just eke out little places where we could, uh, areas near the near the oil refineries and oil fields and stuff, uh, where we could uh, we could hold those areas. The rest of society can go to hell, and it has gone to hell. I mean, of course, they don't care about that, you know. Uh, but that just that simple concept is very difficult for a lot of people to uh, conceive of or to accept because it challenges their idea. Uh, or challenges the propaganda they've been subjected to. It gives them the idea uh, that their leaders are decent people who care about the little guy and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, until people get that into, into their heads, that that's not the case, that these people are, as Jason just said, there's a pathology, there's a probably psychopathology or some kind of character disturbance among these people. And also they've all, they've all been, most of them have been brought up or, pulled themselves up into this kind of rarefied atmosphere of uh, the very rich who all mingle, intermingle in certain circles and have a certain lifestyle and they all have a certain perspective towards the ordinary people in the street. And the bottom line is they're very detached from the cares and concerns and uh, troubles of the ordinary person because they don't have the, some of those major concerns because they're very wealthy and they have a lot of power. So they're okay, they're happy. And they don't really, they've lived in that world for so long that they just can't relate to the ordinary person and their ordinary struggles anymore. Mm -hmm. How does Trump fit into all this? Um, How does Trump fit into that? Yeah, because doesn't Trump love the little guy? Doesn't he want to make America great again for everyone? He does. He's going to do it too. He's going to build a wall. He's going to do it. Just watch. He's going to make America great again. He's He's going to build the best wall. Um, I don't know. I mean, people are acting like Trump came out of nowhere. I think that there's a lot of people who kind of weren't as surprised. I was, I was actually, I was pleasantly surprised to see that so many people were kind of like rejecting what I would consider to be the sort of horrific social narrative that currently exists in the U.S. But I mean, I have to admit that I didn't completely see him being so successful. But I was kind of like quietly happy about it because I was just snickering to myself about how many sort of bleeding heart liberals were just sort of like biting their nails and and taking Pepto-Bismol just to 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 deal with the nerve wracking anxiety and neurosis that it was causing. And and I just think it's it's pretty fantastic, actually. I I like the whole situation. Mm. But do you have to be a bleeding heart liberal to be worried about a Trump presidency? Yeah, kind of. Pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, you have to be a bleeding heart liberal, pretty much. Well, not really. I think, I, I, you know, today you have a lot of liberals who've come forward. I mean, like, you know, Dave Rubin, Sam Harris type people. But whatever you think of those people in the end, I mean, they're sort of really kind of 
hardcore liberals and they've kind of come out with this new thing. They call it the regressive left or they call it the, the neoliberal thought collective or they have these different new words to describe those individuals. But, but yeah, I mean the sort of the Democrat individuals, what, what, however they fit on the spectrum, it's this, all these different words are really kind of poorly defined in American politics. They're just sort of thrown around willy nilly and who knows Mm -hmm. what they mean. But uh, generally, I mean, if you're not a conservative Republican or possibly a libertarian, then you're pretty much going to find yourself placed somewhere on the classical liberal to the neoliberal regressive left spectrum. And then uh, Trump and any kind of Republican victory is always going to be like catastrophic to your worldview because they've lived inside of this media uh, echo chamber that sort of reflects back to them constantly the the supremacy of their basic ideology and that the the Republicans and anyone on whatever they like to call the right is some kind of racist, horrible, bigot, uh, baby-killing, climate-denying, or, you know, whatever it is, type of person, you know? So, I mean, if you're you're a Republican, I mean, it's just basically functionally equivalent to calling someone a racist, bigot, homophobe, xenophobe, Islamophobe. It's like all kind of like wrapped into this one big thing. So to them, I mean, it's like the threat is almost existential. You see them like getting teary eyed. What's going to happen? The Republican. No. And, and they just like freak out of the histrionic about it because, you know, I mean, part of them realizes that, that the play party uh, from the 1960s onward is kind of over in the U.S., or it's hopefully is going to be over. It's, it could be the end, you know? The, the lights are going to come on, the disco ball is going to stop spinning, and the, the, the liberal party of, you know, sort of like relativistic morality and, and uh, sort of secular ideology is kind of a, a little bit over. You know, people are kind of tired of the sort of the crybabies and the crybullies of, of, of the left. So, yeah, for them it's existential. Yeah. It just, um, it's hard to speak to any of this. Uh, um, by this, I mean uh, the fear that's being promoted by the media and to, what, to whatever extent it exists among the American population and, and, and pop, other people around the world, like in Europe and stuff. There's been plenty of stuff about um, people going around asking people in the streets of like London or European cities what they think of Donald Trump. And uh, they all hate Donald Trump. Um, but the only reason they hate Donald Trump, well, they've been encouraged to hate him by the uh, by the media, but also because they're fundamentally ignorant about the nature of of Amer- American politicians, the establishment politicians, and the kind of Washington establishment and the people that populate it. Uh, because, of course, the media's been behind them forever and presents them as as these wonderful leaders of the free world and generally all-around good people with the odd exception, like Bill Clinton, you know, um, and the odd uh, genetic issue in the form of w, George W. Bush. Uh, but by and large, all these people, and obviously they're not, you know, I mean, they have a problem with Trump coming out and say, take, coming out with these misogynistic kind of, I don't even know if it's not really misogynistic. Well, maybe it is to some extent. Depends what your definition of that word is. But uh, they're kind of crass uh, statements about women and he's a bit of a womanizer, I suppose, and this kind of thing. But um, you contrast that with uh, Bill Clinton, for example, 
who was America's president for eight years, beginning in nineteen was actually a rapist. who was actually a rapist, and and who has a proclivity probably for small children, based on the this guy, uh, this, this guy, um, Jeffrey Epstein, Epstein, who Jeffrey Epstein to Ireland that he goes to, and apparently Hillary Clinton went there as well. So I don't know what her proclivity proclivity is for, maybe like underage salamanders or something. I don't know. Anyway, uh, you never know. It's a, it's, 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 it's an exotic <laughs> island. You know, but the thing is, they don't understand the kind of <coughs> nature of the people that populate, like I'm saying, populate Washington. And uh, so if you've had a president who uh, is accused of, of having, having raped someone and, you, and it wasn't a problem and look at what he did officially in the White House, he's a he's a he's a, a bigamist or a, an adulterer and a shameless one. Uh, how can you turn around and then and uh, what is what is it? 16, no, uh, 10, 24 years later. Oh, well, it was later than that, but anyway, but 16, 20 years later, have an issue with Trump. Well, it's like, it's 10 years later. I mean, the thing is... After, like, after Clinton and the White House and Lewinsky and stuff, that was oh, 1998, yeah. right? Oh, so, yeah. So it's so like 18 years later, suddenly everybody's having a, a freak out attack about, <laughs> about Trump, who pretty much is showing that he's... Of a, has a similar attitude towards towards women, which is like you know they're they're, they're uh, for the taken type of thing, and of course that's available for people in his positions of power, in his position of in his position of wealth and power. Um, so the whole thing is just ridiculous. And then if you go to the issue of his stance on immigrants, I mean those these are two things that people around the world are Trump haters around the world and in America. Uh, have a problem with his stance on his attitude towards women and his attitude towards immigrants. He's going to build a wall and he doesn't like immigrants, right? So on the one hand, you've had a president who's rapist in the White House. What's your problem with Clinton? And if you knew a little bit about the other presidents, George Bush and the kind of things he gets up to and his uh, Dick Cheney, for example, who, uh, you know, there's lots of very, very dark hunting people, that kind of thing, very dark and scary kind of stuff. So the fact that they would be concerned about Donald Trump on that issue and on, for example, immigrants, oh, he doesn't like immigrants. He's going to make, you know, uh, wonderful liberal America turn it into a, a... a lockdown, kind of a close down the borders and not letting any immigrants in and turn it into this kind of white supremacist country or something like that. Uh, he, he, you know, he has no history in, in politics. He has never had an opportunity to show that he actually has an issue with or he's racist in any way whatsoever. But every single president since Bill Clinton has shown themselves to clearly not give a crap about uh, or and effectively be racist in the sense that they, they had no problem um Consciously and willfully sending American troops across the, the seas to uh, kill thousands of of ragheads of, uh, and I'll use another term here in quotes, sand niggers or uh, camel jockeys. Camel jockeys. Uh, these are the these are the terms that come out of America that have come out of America that have been formed in America as a result of the U.S. successive U.S. governments' uh, blatant, deliberate attacks on. Muslims in the Middle East and in North Africa and, and Africans uh, further south. Uh, so these people clearly are not just racists. They are genocidal maniacs, if you want to go that far, because you know, in, in Libya, Hillary Clinton consciously decided to uh, demonize Gaddafi as a brutal dictator when he was not, accuse him of bombing his own people when he was not, and then use that to go and kill 40,000 Libyans and declare it a victory. So that's the kind of person you're dealing with in Hillary Clinton and her ilk in Washington going back probably quite a long time. These are the people that, that have been ch- picked from every presidential election uh, before now. 
So Trump comes along, says a few things about women that are crass and insulting, and says a few things about immigrants that appeal to uh, the current kind of political climate where people are worried about, you know, their jobs and immigrants and stuff. And suddenly everybody freaks out. The only reason they would freak out about that is, is if they're woefully ignorant of the reality that they have been living in for the past 30 or 40 years and, and the nature of the people that have ruled over them for the past 30 or 40 years who are infinitely worse, clearly, than Donald Trump, at least on the basis of the fact that Donald Trump hasn't had an opportunity to prove his genocidal proclivities yet. Yet. <laughs> well, if he hasn't. Well, I mean, let's put things into perspective, okay? The problem is, is there needs to be a little bit more honesty in the world, especially with dudes, which is that when dudes get alone and get drunk in a trailer, they're probably going to say some stuff that they might be a bit ashamed of. I've said plenty of things in my life. Right, but you're not run for president. <clears throat> yeah, that, that's, that, that, that's like a bullshit. It's such a bullshit argument. Like this whole people actually giving play to the idea. What he said literally was... These girls are so uh, hot or whatever it is that they'll they'll rub up against you. They they'll let you grab their 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 vaginas. Right. They'll, they'll let you grab their crotch is literally what he said. I mean, I listened to the tape. What he said was that they'll let you uh, do this kind of stuff. What he's just describing a reality that everybody knows he's not the blame for hypergamy. So a couple of sort of groupie girls decided to go hang out with the, the guy who's got the champagne wishes and caviar dreams. I'm not going to blame the women. I'm not going to blame him. Yeah, it was a stupid thing to say, but I don't give a toss. I literally do not give a flying toss about what he said 10 years ago in a private conversation to some dude while they were drinking some champagne. Like it's hardly even, it doesn't register as a blip, right? Yeah, but Think about this. The, the entire political left establishment, the, the Democrats, are scouring desperate for anything this guy has done. Mm-hmm. And the best they can find is a hot mic where he talks about women who are consensually allowing him to grab their genitals. Sorry, heterosexual male. Here's a news flash to people in the world, uh, guys and girls and, you know, the birds and the bees and that kind of stuff can happen. You know, don't 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 get your panties in a twist when you well, find he, out about this. But that's the worst thing they can find about the well, guy it's not, it, is a hot mic. Yeah, that's that's ridiculous. Why is it? It's still being brought up, and everyone's yeah. His ideas about women. What idea about women did he really and truly express? They like me, and they let me touch them. That's like every guy's dream. Every guy wants girls to let them touch them. So I'm not surprised by anything that the man said at all. It's ridiculous. It was crass. It was, you know, the problem is sophomoric. It's, it's not becoming of a president in the average person's mind. Yeah, but because the average person is stupid. Well, there's not, nothing wrong with the average person uh, wanting one of their, le- their leader, the, the, this, the commander in chief of their country, to be that he should be that he or she in this case should be held to a higher standard and that uh, the whole point is you're meant to be better than me if i'm going to let you lead you're meant to be better than me that's the way people perceive it let me dash everybody in the world's dreams right now you will never find a single man ever who at one point sometime in the past did not say something sophomoric that doesn't mean anything about them or the you're not going to find them. Such a man does not exist. Such a person does not exist. There's plenty of women who, who also say sophomoric things when they're, when they're young or you know, in, in private conversations about the opposite sex. You are never, ever going to find anybody in the world who hasn't at least once said something 
that they probably don't really think is is the truth. They don't really think was a great thing. They might feel, oh, well, you know, I said it, but now I'm going to, you know, that's not me anymore. So right. fighting something 10 years ago in the so past. You, so you're saying people should kind of grow up. People should accept, grow the F up. And, well, okay. Accept, accept the fact that, and maybe they could and would do this, except the fact that uh, their presidential candidate is a human being like everybody else. And if he's a man, then he's going to have and the worst thing, in, but that that then, if 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 we can accept that, we or we may be able to accept that as long as he doesn't, you know, kind of uh, do it a lot. Well, uh, and if, as long as he as long as he's smart enough to know that he shouldn't do it in public, shouldn't yeah. uh, should be careful, shouldn't. Uh, so, how many videos have you seen of him grabbing women in the crotch in public? I mean, you think well, no, that they would have talk, scoured? Well, I'm that. talking about it. I know, right? Or him talking about it. They've got one tape. I mean, they scour. They're desperate for this stuff. I mean, the amount of effort and money and, and searching that they've put behind it, and the best thing they really came up with was a hot mic 10 years ago. Yeah. That, that says something actually about him. That, that rose him in my esteem because, I mean, you, you read about all these pedophile rings and sex parties and hookers and all this different stuff of all the politicians all over the world, mm. right? And yet this guy... You can't even find, you know, one one beaten up prostitute, you know, one, you know, underage, uh, you know, uh, ethnic hooker or anything like that. You can't find well, anybody about that. They did, actually. Actually, yeah, well, that's okay. not entirely true. I mean, you do have this case of a, of a 13-year-old bringing a, a case against him who was actually part of that whole Jeffrey Epstein crew uh, who basically came out and, and brought him to court to say that uh, she was assaulted by him at age 13 the case was recently dropped by by her yes trump um, and epstein yeah and and the thing of it is i mean i i don't think she, it, this was something she was put up to it 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 does you know oh, I do. there is a, a ring of truth to it there's also a story of uh his first wife ivanka trump stating that uh, after she referred the donald to her plastic surgeon who who botched up the job he literally beat the crap out of her and 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 raped her. Uh, so I, you know, all of these all of these stories aside about what he said ten years ago, uh, I I think that there is a darker side to the guy. Well, that that woman dropped the case. Yes, she well, did drop the case. Yeah, I I don't know why she dropped the case. I suspect it. Uh, well, she said it was because of threats to her safety. Hmm. Yeah. I I don't doubt it. On the- and it was long, wasn't it launched by, by a guy from Jerry Springer? No. I believe so. I, I don't but know. But that's not to say none of it's true, but the thing is, I mean, uh, people, like, in a certain sense, Jason is true, but it, and, and also it shouldn't be this way that people have to grow up, you know? And maybe there's a process of people being forced to grow up and to see the truth of, uh, of the world around them and their authorities, etc., for what it is. Maybe that's that's all to the good. That's actually a positive development, even though it's well, painful and there's lots of angst and all this kind of stuff. Um, on this topic, I mean, you know, this this person who brought this accusation. I mean, like, you know, she this this girl would have the backing, the support, and the protection of the entire Democratic, Democratic National Convention. Not only that, but she would have money. I mean, we're talking about like Hunger Games winner type of opulence. If she could, if she could hand them on the platter, even like I mean, the the the, the level of proof would have to be just minuscule. If, even if she could just give like a really, they would trot her out 
to tell her story. So why aren't they? Because so she the, was part the of is, the, this Jeffrey the, Epstein uh, network. Because that, a lot of the rest of them are implicated. To. Yeah. Well, I mean, so they, they possibly. Were, I mean, but this, but that speaks to the point that I'm saying is that the whole lot of them are all there's a clique, they're a political elite clique who all, uh, not all of them maybe, but a lot of them are all dirty in some way or other, and none of them, when they're exposed to the light of day, are going to look like presidential candidates. So, uh, but you know, leaving that aside, leaving that aside, then I suppose the thing is to is to focus on, uh, okay, yeah, they're damaged, they're kind of. Dirty goods, let's say. You're not going to get a nice president who's going to come along, and, and unless unless it's Obama again for the third term because he's such a lovely, shiny guy, but um, who also kills people. But he just uh, loves that pen. Yeah. They. Um, what is what are their? How do we how do we measure them based on? Uh, what they would would like would be likely to do or wouldn't do once they became president. I mean, is it a uh, would would Trump be a good change from the kind of revolving kind of door type thing of these Washington dynasty elite types? You know, Bushes and Clintons and and their lackeys like Obama and people like that. I mean, it's better to have someone like Trump. Is he any different functionally? Really, is he any different because he's not an insider? Does he bring anything new or is this all a moot point because he doesn't really, as commander in chief, he doesn't really get to decide very much of any significance anyway? Well, I mean, a president in a certain sense kind of sets a certain tone, you know, for the the ideological narrative behind the administration. I don't think he really mm. decides, decides, you know. Mm. But, but the thing is, is quite interestingly, is that is it seems like Obama has been a bit more of a decider than you would have expected, or at least has appeared that way. And, you know, there's some people in the House of Representatives, I mean, sort of Gowdy and Chaffetz, those guys are really kind of like unhappy about, you know, Obama's, Obama's not obeying certain, certain rules, especially about immigration and laws that have been passed and, and his various policies that they consider to be sort of violations of the law or, or sort of an, uh, an an executive branch overreach. So, I mean, who knows at this point uh, whether or not Obama is doing more than, than maybe you think he should. Yeah. This, um, this point about the, um, <clears throat> about there being limits to the dirt each can dig up and then expose on the other is an interesting one because Consider that as lowball as this campaign has been, uh, and it stands out, I mean, it's markedly worse than anything else that's happened before in the US election. Um, as lowball as it is, it's actually, <laughs> I think it's actually quite refined. <laughs> given, given the deeper, darker topics they're all skirting around. I mean, Epstein is hanging in the air there like a Damocles sword over both of them because what I didn't realize until more recently is that um, not only is were 20 different phone numbers of Bill Clinton in Jeffrey Epstein's little black book, there were also 8 to 10 contacts, ways to contact Donald Trump. Um, so indeed, they all move in the same circles. Um, we got another little whiff of it this week when one of the WikiLeaks um, emails uh, was inviting 
or trying to confirm an arrangement for the campaign manager Podesta to go to dinner with some shady artsy type who does the spirit cooking thing. Um, was it just dinner? Was it dinner with some weirdness? Was it a little bit of a cult or does it suggest far deeper engagement in satanic occult stuff? It's left hanging in the air. You know what I mean? Um, the same with these allegations about sexual impropriety. It's left hanging in the air on both of them that they have connections to sadists, to uh, pedophiles, and so on. So um, they're actually having to hold themselves back from going too far, really, because there's a risk of exposing, lifting the lid on the entire den, if you like, um, what is a norm for, for many of these people in power and in wealth in the U.S.? And not just in the U.S., of course, across the world. I mean, I, I agree with uh, with some of that stuff. I do think that sometimes there's a, a bit of circumstantial evidence. Sometimes you just can't know. You know, he's, his number was in a book. Well, he's a rich guy in New York. You know, was he moving in those circles because he was rich or because he was doing something crazy? I do. I, I heard the story, and again, like I'm politics. I have to admit, and I will be completely honest, is really not my shtick. Unfortunately, like I don't really get too involved in a fine grained understanding of you know every single thing that's going on. So I'll have to plead ignorance on on a couple of things. But um, I did hear the story that uh, Donald Trump carted out the 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 accusers of Bill Clinton for the various sexual deviancies. You know, and and brought them to I guess a debate or some sort of you know function, mm -hmm. and carted them out in front of them. So I mean, they're well. Well, Neil's right. They kind of are holding back on some of the more, some of the more really raunchy and questionable stuff that might interlink them. I mean, Trump did fire that shot, and you would think that the the DNC would be a little bit more. I mean, because all you got to do is you take this young girl and you sit her down and you say, look, two things are happening. You can get, you know, one of the people who, who did this to you if you just say the right things or, you know, you can disappear into the knocked and nebble. And all those things are sort of realistic conversations that could definitely take place considering those situations. So why didn't they? I'm kind of like that would have been an interesting sort of thing. Would that have been like a, a kind of a scorched earth thing? Like you take me down, I'll take you down and we'll just all the trip that that's totally a, a legitimate narrative i think but i'm just sort of i'm a little bit curious about this because when you're when you're rich and famous it's kind of easy for people to come and make accusations against you and it looks you know and and, and it, when you have this huge support base this power support base on the clinton side that definitely could have swooped in and, and stuff like that i'm a little bit want to back up a little bit and be like huh hold on a second this i smell a little bit of a rat here because the narrative doesn't really uh, suss out for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I generally, I, I don't consider it an accusation uh, proof of anything, right? You know, I mean, people make accusations all the time, false mm -hmm. accusations. I mean, there's a reason why thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor what made it into the Ten Commandments. You know, 2,000 years ago, it was sort of noticed that sometimes people will, will try to say things that are not true. So, uh, yeah. Well, I think the best Go ahead, Harshan. Well, speaking of that, there's been a, an interesting trend over the past few days with some kind of uh, disreputable or 
questionable sources talking about this Jeff Epstein thing. And it started, I think, about five days ago with um, some random post on some random forum saying, you know, this some person saying that they basically claiming to be some kind of insider or have uh, ties to insiders who are saying that um, the FBI has has the dirt on Hillary and her connection to Jeffrey Epstein and, you know, listing all the details of the stuff she gets up to and that this is coming out and it's going to be huge and just wait for it in a few days. So that didn't come. And then we had this um, this ex-State Department official, is he, that uh, Steve Pichenik, um, who's often on Alex Jones's site and or radio show, and he's he's kind of this uh, over the top kind of conspiracy theorist, and he t- he says, well, a lot of things that are kind of um, you know in vogue with the with the alternative kind of conspiracy theory culture. He also says some kind of unverifiable things that seem a bit over the top, and he was saying the same the same thing about Hillary and how Hillary was going to be exposed, and she was going to basically get indicted for pedophilia. And then two days ago, uh, or maybe it was even yesterday, there was a a 4chan forum thing saying the same thing. And then Kim.com on his Twitter was saying, you know, oh, I've seen the evidence and it's uh, it's big and it's going to be released and Hillary's going down. And, uh, and then there was Eric Prince, uh, the Blackwater guy, talking to Breitbart, saying that he's got guys in the FBI that he talks to and they were telling him, pretty much similar things talking about the, the link between Hillary and Jeff Rep, Jeff Epstein. And so I'm just, I'm just all watching of these all sources are involved in this kind of thing themselves, even yeah. the so-called alternative <laughs> ones. Mm-hmm. But it, yeah, so I'm, and also everybody's got sources. Everybody's yeah. got friends in the FBI and anonymous sources yeah. here and there. The Jeffrey Epstein thing though is uh, smacks off uh, a kind of operation by someone to, to effectively blackmail or be in a position to blackmail or control mm-hmm. uh, a lot of these people, you know, I mean, it's it's as old as as time almost, you know, I mean, uh, where you, you know, you entrap people effectively doing something that you can expose them over. So it really smacks it, I can think. I'm sure the fact that that has come to light uh, to the extent that it has is 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 really an indication of of, of the fact that that goes on that, and that it probably goes on. Uh, in a much more comprehensive way and has been going on for for a long time. So you can imagine if you just extrapolate, extrapolate a little bit uh, from that, you can imagine that if there is someone uh, kind of an eminent squeeze behind the throne type of thing in the US, then um, this is how they're, or at least one of the ways, that, uh, how they are able to... Uh, manage the system effectively you know mm. and um, it's always I mean for me it's just people should not people should not be voting at all I mean the only sane response um, I mean of course you can turn even the idea of voting for Jill Stein or something like that is, is pointless as well because um, so few people are I mean if everybody woke up and, and was able to kind of realise the state of the the, the bogus nature of the kind of left-right uh, paradigm that you're forced into the two parties. Uh, if everybody could vote for someone like Jill Stein, then yes. But uh, oh as it is today, <laughs> Jason says, oh God, no, because she's a bit of a greeny liberal. But, it, well, like taking taking Jason's uh, political proclivities into account then, I'll fall back on the idea that nobody should vote at all. I mean, that would be 
the most sane and uh, I mean, uh, uh, you know intelligent approach for everybody to take. Just say I'm not voting and see what happens. That's a, that would be the first time. Um, that would be the first time anybody had not voted. Uh, I think in the U.S. election ever. So why not try that and see what happens? I but, mean, I'd rather vote for Jill Stein than Bernie Sanders, but. Yeah, but Joe, that is kind of happening. Um, uh, one of the serious scientific in quotes polls in May or June, and it was repeated. I think it was found again, sort of confirming the experiment. Found that, and um, most people prefer neither candidate. Right. <laughs> so but, at but least still... in, in the minds of people, they have rejected right. this election. But they're being forced now, they to may vote. Still vote anyway. They're being forced to vote but because it over might and over be less again. than a majority, though. Yeah. Well, it definitely would be less than a majority. I right. think all the, for, for most elections, it's less than a majority because there's something like we're looking at these figures previously. We talked about them pre- previously. I think out of 320 million people in America, there's about 213 or 210 million people who are adult and eligible to vote. And of those, about 160 or something actually vote. Uh, are actually, sorry, are registered to vote. So there's like something like 30% of American adults who are eligible to vote are not even registered to vote. That leaves you with 70% of people who are actually registered to vote. And then in most elections, it's somewhere, it's usually not much more, I think the last one was 53% or something like that. So then you're down to um, half of 70%, uh, 30, 35%, somewhere between 30 and 40% of people who are eligible to, who are eligible to vote in the US actually vote. So 60 to 70% of American adults historically in presidential elections do not vote. Well, I mean, like in a certain sense, most people know that the voting doesn't really lead them much. I mean, voting in America is really just like a great big poll uh, of people. I mean, it doesn't really sort of mean anything. Your vote doesn't really matter in any sense. It's just, I think a lot of people vote with their YouTube comments and their Twitter, you know, hashtags Mm. more than anything. They, they get sort of like this sense of, of, of where society's opinion is at more than, than actually who goes to the ballot box. Because, mm. uh, what, in, what people end up getting exposed to in the media and what they think the, the society at large thinks uh, has a lot to do with how they're going to vote when they, when they actually go to the, to the voting booth, I think. So, I mean, the, the incredible reaction to everything Hillary and everything Democrat uh, on the internet has kind of shown what the, 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 the opinion of most Americans is. Mm. So why is this such a big issue then? Well, it's being promoted as a big issue and it's got the world in thrall right now in, in, <coughs> in the media over the presidential election. And, and, and why have we spent the last five radio shows on it? Yeah, so they're making, they're making a big deal about it, but it's not really a big deal at all. And really, when you get to be president, or what you're really lobbying for, it's a contest between two people to get to be uh, in, in the White House, which affords them, more than anything else, the ability to probably just make money. I think that the, the, the average American, in a certain sense, doesn't really care too much about politics, which is probably why the various sort of pathocratic individuals in power can kind of get away with right now kind of bloody murder when it comes to like geopolitics and foreign policy. They kind of, they don't really have a head for it and they don't really think about it too much. It doesn't really seem to matter to them. What does sort of seem to matter and has mattered for, I don't know, say for instance, the last four years has been 
sort of a general cultural war going on between sort of what you could kind of define as, I don't know, liberals, lefty type individuals or whatever. And, you know, sort of like cultural Marxists and cultural libertarians to set a steal Alan Bukhari's kind of terminology. I mean, so that sort of thing has been going on in, in what they kind of call the Twitter sphere and the YouTube and all this different, you know, all of this different stuff. Right. So these people have been sort of in the trenches with this whole cultural war. And a lot of those people turn their eye to the Trump campaign and have driven a lot of the uh, Twitter hashtags and, and videos and, and co YouTube comments and website comments because they're sort of a highly dedicated sort of uh, entrenched cultural libertarian type of individuals who hmm. have a lot of time and they're usually sort of involved in like video games and, and internet and tech. So that cultural war that's been raging now for probably about four years, at least uh, maybe three um, has really been one of the driving factors behind it. It really doesn't have much to do with politics, which is why Donald Trump's policy positions, even though actually some of them are quite good and I would agree with them, they almost don't matter to a lot of these people because it's more of an F you to the PC uh, liberal media type mm. of thing that Bill Maher, well, Bill Maher is kind of a little bit more palatable to a lot of people because even a lot of the sort of centrist liberals are sort of a little bit kind of tired of what they keep calling the regressive left, you know, which is everyone sort of repeating now this idea of the regressive left or the neoliberal thought collective or whatever it is. So that cultural war that's been raging is really where a lot of this stuff is coming from. Nobody gives two, two bits in a twig about, about what actually happens Trump, afterwards, right? Yeah. Cause they're not really, they understand <clears throat> intrinsically that, uh, the people of a country and any country do not actually have any control of the politi politics to a certain extent. And, and they never will. They never have. It's, it's all kind of been an illusion in a certain sense. But there's a lot of people who kind of understand that you have control over the society within which your politicians grow. And you kind of end up creating the people who kind of rule over you. Mm -hmm. But they've kind of a lot of people have come to terms with this fact that you can't you can't have any kind of fine grained control over over politics. You certainly couldn't have it a hundred years ago. Uh, you really can't have it today, and and the geopolitical world and this this whole thing. So and right now we've kind of got the leaders that we deserve, you know, from the last sixty years of of education and culture and and all that stuff. So that's what I think that it comes from. I think that nobody actually gives a fig about the politics. I want to hear. Elan and Harrison answer that question. What was the question? I can't remember, actually. The, the question was, is like, where was this thing, this whole thing, this question between Trump and all this stuff, where was it coming from? What was the source in America of this whole movement or this idea? You know, what was, what's it all about? For what's, the, what's the point, given right. that 30%, oh, maybe only 30% of, of right. American adults will actually vote for either of these two candidates, why is this being foisted yes. on the public at large as if it's some really important um, issue that they need to, they need to vote on? Hmm. Well, I, I could start. Um, my my first thought about Trump is that he's kind of uh, a default um, politician. Uh, that he's you know he sort of rose up. Well, first of all, I think, uh, Jason, your point about uh, 
the candidates being a product of American society and culture is absolutely correct. I mean, this is a reality TV show star. He's crude. He's, uh, you know, on a very superficial level, he is America. He represents uh, American values um, to a T in a way. Um, and, I, you know, it, it's a testament to how bad uh, the, the kind of um, the field of candidates are that he could just with his own uh, his own kind of style of, of bullying and uh, his own kind of America first rhetoric rise to the top in the way that he has. So, you know, it's amazing. Uh, so I, I think that's a part of it. Well, it is kind of a, a strange paradox or like contradiction because on the one hand, I think it, it's a big issue because America is a big issue in the globe in the sense that, um, like the American regime, whatever it is, has a, a vast influence over the livelihoods of like billions of people in the rest of the world. And I think that's the, I think that's kind of, if you look at it from the biggest, uh, like the largest point of view, that's why people in the rest of the world watch the American elections because it's going to influence them because the, the Americans are and consider themselves like the top dog militarily, geopolitically, um, just look at the reach of the CIA. So when you look at an American politician, uh, American presidential race election, then it's like, even if we, even if we um, accept that it doesn't really matter, then it kind of does just in the sense that it brings, it, it just brings that whole, um, that whole dynamic to the top and onto, into people's minds again, that the American political system, what, whoever is president is going to determine the lives of a lot of people around the world. So just from the big, so in, in one sense, it doesn't really matter, but the fact that, um, just the fact that America is so powerful still and wields so much influence, it becomes an issue. Now, on the other hand, you have, like, if we look specifically at Hillary and Trump, um, I mean, elections are a big deal Anytime there's an election, I mean, um, and I think just by virtue, again, of the, the place America has in the media and in politics. But with Hillary and Trump specifically, I think one of the reasons that it's so big is that the American system is, in a sense, like falling apart from the, you know, the weight of its own corruption and just decay to the point where things have gone, ha have become, uh, they've gotten to the point of being so over the top that it's kind of like a car, a car crash where you can't look away where um so if if you just look at both sides you've and look at the perspective of um the the critics of each side so trump if you just look at the the perspective of the people that hate trump you've got this guy who they see as the the worst form of like a a human being like the and almost like a caricature and a joke of a person and so for, mm -hmm. for the world at large, you, it's like, okay, well, wow, this is a joke. We've got a, t a, a reality TV star running for president, and he's not super eloquent. He's not presidential. You know, he says, he contradicts himself, himself. He says crass things. On the other hand, then you look at, at Clinton, and you've got this perfect representative of uh, American imperialism who um, just wants to kill as many people as possible and lies and cheats and steals. 
and who is just a, a reprehensible person in a different kind of way. This is the kind of backstabbing, um, nasty kind of um, politics, politicking person that's that's in the White House. And so you've got these two kind of extremes, and a lot of the stuff that has you know previously been kind of behind the scenes, it might be something that that a lot of people like um, will accept, but it's it's it hasn't reached the level of like p- publicity. Um, that it has in this election, where we've got these WikiLeaks things going on. We've got Clinton being, you know, like, what, five publicly known FBI investigations against her or her associates. And um, so it's almost like just a reflection of of just how screwed up the system is. So it may not be, from one perspective, it may not be that big a deal, but... It's not. It's like it, what we're actually looking at isn't the contest between uh, Trump and Hillary. It's just we're looking at how messed up the system is. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, um, you know, like one of you guys said earlier in the show, you know, Trump is an unknown quantity in the sense that he hasn't yet been able to, uh, you know, to show the world whether he's got the genocidal bent in him or not. And I think mm-hmm. that is something that uh, that is newsworthy, just in the sense that here's a guy who's saying things that you haven't really heard in American politics for generations. I mean, if you look at Obama, he was saying, you know, a lot of, well, he was doing the, um, he was saying a lot of things, but in a standard politics kind of way, like, oh, everyone, Mm. you know, hates Guantanamo, so I'm going to close Guantanamo. Everyone hates that our troops are in Iraq. Well, I'm going to bring our troops home from Iraq. But he wasn't saying the system is corrupt and needs, you know, we need to, um, you know, flush it down. Yeah, drain the swamp. Like that's and so when you have someone saying that, whether um, whether sincerely or not, the fact that he's saying it is big news, and I think that's why there is this kind of cultural um, response to it, where you've got where you've got all this um, kind of just public reaction to it because he's saying something that people um, you know can can resonate with and and get behind, whether or not he's sincere. But the fact that he is an unknown quantity gives that edge to people where they where um, they can, um, in a sense, believe him more than they could uh, maybe believe Obama. Because now that they've seen uh-huh. Obama, they've seen that that he you know he was this symbol of hope and change, and then he proved himself to be just another establishment guy. Well, Trump, you know, he isn't an establishment guy, so therefore maybe he's actually being sincere. You know, whether that's right or not, who knows, but I think that's where um, a lot of this kind of uh, back and forth and conflict is coming from, because there is this this almost like... This hope. new element. Yeah, this new element, and it gives a new ele- a new kind of hope for change. Now, whether that's, uh, you know, whether that's going to happen change. or not. Yeah. So. If it's an Obama type of hopey changey, right. uh, we don't know yet. It's... Um, <clears throat> We were talking about this. I've been talking about this, about this um, on and off. Um, the idea that if there is some, if there are some establishment figures who don't get elected, who kind of have a controlling hand over American, uh, over America, the country, like let's say banks, corporations, you know, the military-industrial complex type thing. Um, that and if they're keyed into how, what the American people are feeling and the way it's going, and they're looking at the previous administrations, or let's say over the past 
15 or 20 years or whatever, they notice that the left-right paradigm has been used and abused uh, and it may have got, they've maybe decided that it's got to the point where they can't really expect to keep passing this bogus paradigm off on people where, you know, pick some Republicans for four years and then pick some Democrats and that'll change things and then pick Republicans again and they'll change things when in fact you see that nothing really changes. You had eight years of Obama and there was no significant certainty in foreign policy. It was continued on from the Bush era and the neocons. It was no different whatsoever. And yet he was a, he was supposedly a Democrat and they were Republicans. So, I mean, the, the fact that that Democrat, Democrat Republican difference doesn't really exist anymore. If it ever really did, as maybe it did in the past, but it certainly doesn't exist anymore. anymore. And that's the one thing that kind of argues for there being this, <coughs> this controlling hand behind the scenes that has a, a one singular agenda and it's to keep America great no matter what. And that in particular, uh, in terms of foreign policy will dictate that the foreign policy does not change. America has to go around the world projecting power and stealing stuff and doing what it's always done domestically. Well, as the corruption has increased over the years and you have a, a more and more entrenched and concentrated kind of, group of, of, of rich people, well, they're feeding off, as well as feeding off foreign policy, they're feeding off uh, the ordinary people in America. So domestic policy by that token isn't going to change either. I mean, there's not going to be, uh, I mean, pharmaceutical companies, uh, for example, make an awful lot of money from American taxpayers uh, and have done for a long time. Um, so there's not going to really be any difference between Republicans and Democrats, uh, Republican or Democrat administration towards healthcare, for example, because pharmaceutical, uh, pharmaceutical companies have to continue to make as much money as, as, as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's probably other areas where you could say that nothing's going to change regardless of the type of administration that's in power. So they, they may realize that they can't keep fooling the people that it's, they've run out of uh, the legs on this left-right paradigm thing have, have gone as far as they're going to go. People are not going to accept it anymore. You're going to going to create a situation where people just become totally disillusioned with their political system when they start to realize there's no difference. You've been telling us there's a difference between these two major parties all these years and that if I decide with one based on my values or the other based on my values, I will get some change. If, if I'm, you know, if, if I can uh, get enough people to vote for my candidate, then things will change the way I want them to change. But the, you realize that nothing changes regardless. Things stay the same. There's a third agenda behind the scenes that's, that, that is over and above left or right. And people start to realize that if you keep giving them left, right, left, right, left, right, nothing changes. So maybe they decided that the best way to stir things up a little bit and change it, at least provide the appearance of change, is to bring in an outsider like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And of course, true. when you do that, mm-hmm. you don't get an establishment figure who's polished, who was brought up in Martha's Vineyard with a, Martha's Vineyard with a with a silver spoon up his backside. You, you don't get that kind of person when you're pulling someone from the outside. You're going to get a, a what do I call him? An uncut, a rough diamond uh, who's going to say some rude things and have a bit of a, uh, a checkered history. And he's not going to be the refined statesman that you would expect. But that in itself is appealing because it, it, it points to this being something different. Change. Hopey change. Things can be different. Change your hope. So, but... Is that going to happen? Well, then you come back to the question of does the president have any real ability at this point as American 
America, the country, and America, the political system, and America, the the, the kind of uh, the ruling elite. Uh, at 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 this point um, in history, in their development, where they've really seemed to have a death grip on everything, is it even possible that a president could come into a system like that, new from the outside, and be like a whirlwind and change change it all up? And you can say, well, you can say he's going to drain the swamp. Uh, and he can he can point out to everybody that this is about the corruption, and a lot of people can resonate with that. But when he gets there, he finds a whole set of rules and regulations and locked doors and all this kind of stuff. And what's he going to do? He's just one guy. He doesn't have any. He's not bringing a team in with him. He doesn't have any connections really in Washington. He's a newbie. So while him being an outsider argues, at least in theory, for the idea that he could change things up, the very fact that he's an outsider argues against him even really having any chance, if anybody did, of of changing anything within the system because he's not a part of the system. He doesn't know anybody. He doesn't have any contacts. He can't call on some people to, you know, to who are in the system to work the system to show them how it operates to to to, to affect some change. You know, so I don't know. I mean, if if you go through, like, I don't know if anyone has actually gone through. Uh, Trump's policy positions, like his the documentation of what his his sort of his campaign says he's about and what he's going to do. Um, <clears throat> but I did, and it, it was kind of he was curiously perspicacious when it came to politics because he has a very favorable opinion of the military, and his military program. I kind of like it actually. It's not so bad. I mean, he wants to beef up the Navy and beef up the Marine Corps, and I'm all happy about that. But it's he's got a very sort of, you know, traditional sort of like uh, got to make the military great again type of stuff. So he's going to get support in Washington from the generals with his perspective. He wants to beef up the number of people, the active duty personnel in the Navy and increase the number of uh, ships. Mm. And he wants to uh, retrofit the whole, the, the aviation division and all the, all the planes. So, I mean, he's going to get, he's going to have friends coming in if that's his, his position. Well, what he needs to do then is have a military coup. Well, I mean, in a sense, you know, uh, politics maybe doesn't work so much that, that way all the time, but yeah, he's kind of going to have a military cue. Cause if, when you look at his, his positions, most of the stuff that he's talking about with corruption, he's talking about sort of like corrupt regulations. He's talking mm. about Obamacare. He's talking about things other than like, say for instance, the military. So that's a strong point in his favor for his being accepted into Washington by a lot of the generals, uh, and maybe even the intelligence community, because he's talking about beefing them up. He's his position on immigration, ICE, and uh, local and state law enforcement is going to get him a lot of support, uh, especially in the the gay, gay, the blue family type of uh, type of people. There's a, there's a very large contingent of you know blue lives matter type of people in America. Mm. So he's got a lot of support there. Um, he's going to get a you know a lot of support in in the House of Representatives because they've kind of been grinding on about this whole uh, uh, implementing immigration laws. Let's get rid of the illegal aliens. Let's stop sanctuary cities and stuff like that. So his, his, his idea of corruption is not what some other people would consider to be like the corruption. You know, he's not planning to root out the military industrial complex. He's, 
not planning on cutting into their budget. So he's going to have the big major standing army power broker, which is, you know, in Washington is going to like him because he is kind of going to have probably more likely this very standoff perspective to the military. He's going to be like, we need more Marines, more ships, more planes, generals go do stuff. He seems to be that type of person. Whereas, you know, there's, there's nothing a general likes less than a politician who thinks that war is too important to be left up to generals. I mean, mm. sort of the Winston Churchill way of doing things. They absolutely hate those people. So I think when him going in, he's going to have a little bit more political acceptance uh, from like the intelligence agencies, intelligence community, and mm. uh, the military. Well, they're all part of the swamp. Well, from from our from from our perspective, perhaps. And when he's and and that's what the people look to. But what I, was what I mean is that we shouldn't take him seriously at all when he says I'm going to drain the swamp because he's not. Well, but people are looking to him to do what Alex Jones cries about regularly on his show these days. He actually breaks down in tears, and he's very good at it. Uh, is at the idea, the hope brings him to tears. The hope that. Uh, that Trump is going to get rid of the evil globalist elite in America. Uh, and that's what he's selling it, selling to his millions of, of viewers every day that, that, this, that he's going to make good on his drain the swamp. I mean, drain the swamp is pretty unambiguous is what he's talking about. At least people are allowed to imagine that he means I'm going to reform everything. You know, lobbyists, all of, all of the corruption in Washington is gone. If Trump tries to do that, he's gone too. I'm talking about his policy papers. I'm talking about like actually what he put down in text in his policy positions on his website, what you can go and read, what it says. And his main thing when he's talking about this corruption, he's talking about like the, the waste and the budget concerns and all these other places that people don't like, mm. education, but are also very important to Americans actually. You know, So he's, he's got his position on education. He's got his position on the Obamacare, health care. He's going to repeal Obamacare. Um, he wants to repeal Obamacare, which is a good idea. And he wants to get rid of that whole thing. Um, and whether or not he'll be able to institute his sort of positions for the pharmaceutical industry and stuff like that, we'll see about it. Because, again, maybe he'll end up playing, you know, one one sort of community, the military industrial comple- complex against the pharmaceutical industrial complex. And which one would I rather see him? Uh, get rid of, and I'd say the pharmaceutical one probably. I mean, mm. I would, I would be like yay military and nay on the sort of big pharma. <laughs> so, who knows if he's actually gonna gonna have so much of a problem? Because of course, when he says drain the swamp, he doesn't mean what a lot of people who are th- think, he ho- think he means. He kind of really just very specific. It's all it's all the Democrat pet programs of Obamacare and stuff like that. He wants to get rid of that stuff and immigration and stuff mm. like that. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I can't wait to see him stand up in front of the, in front of Congress, you know, and have, and expect them all to stand up and clap and applaud. And, and his first words out of his mouth will be, I'm going to build a wall. Probably is, that wall. It, it would seem that there, there's probably in the deep state or the military industrial complex, uh, a team of guys right now sitting in various offices with their secret team uh, members thinking about how Trump thinks and and discussing ways of, you know, it, should he become president, manipulating him. 
And um, I don't think that'll be a very difficult thing to do. You know, all they have to do is is feed him intelligence that uh, that he has no power to or understanding of to verify. If he's got a guy named John Bolton, a notorious neocon, who has uh, who's sort of signed on to his team advising him, uh, I think that that Trump could uh, quite easily, or maybe easily than we than we think, uh, be steered in in the direction of. Um, the exceptional United States, uh, doing all the things that uh, Hillary uh, would be doing if she were elected, doing all the things that Obama has been doing, and um, you know, just being provoked to to react and respond in in ways that uh, they understand would be natural to him. So I think even if he's well intended in in many areas. I don't think he has a. I don't think he has a chance of really uh, acting independently of of those interests that are so powerful and entrenched that would have him continue on this path. I think that he would be subject to a lot of um, a lot of influence that he he has no. He can't even fathom the the the, the subtleties and the ways that they're going to get to him. Well, I think. I think there's a there's a, a validity to what you're saying. There's also a um, one thing to consider, and that's the the type of personality that doesn't listen to reason. Now, it, this kind of subverts the idea because you take a guy like Trump. Let's say he, or just another example. Let's take you know some just business managers or or owner who is constantly getting information from his underlings. Telling him, oh, well, you know, this isn't going to work. Look, here are here are projections for for this new policy or this new campaign that we're doing. Blah blah blah. And the guy at the top just says, well, you know, that's BS. I'm not listening to you, and I'm going to do what I want anyways. There are people like that who don't, you know, listen to reason. Now, when you look at when you extrapolate this up to the presidential level, it's the same dynamic, but with a difference because the intelligence community, for example, will be trying or have like they've done for the past. Um, well, 60 years, they purposefully give faulty intelligence to to get the, the to get the policy that they want enacted and carried out. And so, I can easily see someone like Trump just ignoring their intelligence estimates and uh, and just saying, "Well, no, I, you know, I don't care what your intelligence says. This is what I want to do." So, on the other hand, uh-huh. there's there's that to consider. And then, if that happens, then you know, there's a very real risk of uh, you know a Kennedy option going on mm. Mm. i think uh you all are sound you're talking like uh you're expecting trump to win is that what you're all expecting wednesday uh, a trump victory i'm hoping there are possibilities. Yes. Uh, hope yes over over there in usa yeah, Alana, a fair possibility uh, okay a fair possibility okay yeah, I think uh, you know, that, you know, we were just talking this morning about how the L.A. Times is projecting uh, at least a, a popular um, vote going towards Trump, and um, <coughs> with all of these revelations, one on top of the other, just building, uh, it it just seems as though that may be the uh, the push that's required to help Trump uh, win the election, but. Who knows? It, it could go the other way. 
I mean, these people are so crazy that they might actually end up deciding this on the flip of a coin. I mean, these are sort of like the, the various people in charge. Like it has happened already this year. Know. It has happened. Huh? Yeah, you know, in one of the Democratic primaries. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's that kind of time that crazy things happen. You, you say you hope Trump will win. Yeah. Why? I have. I, I like his education reform program. It's the only thing I like. It's okay. The only thing I'm interested in. Because I know that the problems with America are not going to be fixed by some sort of radical reformer. The only thing I want him to get past is his, is his education reform. So you, you you think that America's problems can actually be fixed? Well, I think America's problems can hopefully maybe be fixed in the next 50 years. You hope? Yeah, I mean, America's going to ultimately end up have to sort of like step down from its global hegemon position or else okay. it's going to fall off the pedestal. Step and, and, down, we hope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but there needs to be like a serious effort in education in America to get people more. I mean, it's it's insane. America's like 27th on math, 17th on reading. I mean, it puts in an Im- immense amount of uh, of money, supposedly. I mean, like some fifteen thousand per student in, in New York, I think. Uh, you know, thirteen thousand in like Baltimore, all per student from K through twelve. And basically, you have like a math literacy that's just absolutely objectionable. You have a reading literacy that's just incredible. The real issue with America is like purely a cultural problem. It's, it's producing a population that just isn't educated, doesn't understand the value of education. I mean, and, and it's just wasting money on this common core type crap and these sort of very liberal designed uh, uh, educational programs that are just dumbing people down. And I just want the education reform. I want him to turn it back into a competitive system where people can choose which school they go to based on the, the results of the education. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not about compulsory, any of this stuff. I'm not about a unified system. I want people to find the best school for their kids that gives them the most knowledge so that they can be competitive so that they can become engineers and doctors and all that different stuff. I want that school to be found. And I know that in in socialist education systems that they have a tendency not to produce anything other than drones. And that's what's kind of going on in America right now. It's just producing lots of Mm. dumbed down drones. Well, that's, that's likely going to require a lot of public spending. No, no. I mean, that's that's the whole idea of sort of privatizing education. This is going to be done by this, this is private his, his individuals. Program. His, his program is about, first of all, first of all, stepping his, his as he presents it, mm-hmm. which I agree with, he steps off the federal spending on, on uh, schools and uh, gives it over to the state to say, all right, well, you states decide. Uh, with the encouragement, the idea that states will sort of allow schools to be a little bit more competitive and allow people to, especially the the impoverished people, to go to like these charter schools where they have sort of vouchers that they can choose which school they, they give the money to, that a school doesn't just get money because it's a school. It has to be performing. It has to be producing educated people. And I tend to support that particular position. Okay. That's, that's that's his. So I mm. I hope for that one because I recognize that no no one's going to come in and, and stop the sort of imperialistic way of doing things. The only hope that any America could ever possibly have is a fool's hope, is for people in America to become educated. Okay, and at the best, we would see positive changes in a generation or two from now. Yeah. What about in the immediate? Well, there's nothing to do about this it. This decade. What's what's going to happen now? 
Who knows? Um, what strikes me about this, you mentioned the term earlier, existential threat to U.S. establishment. Um, I said it's an existential threat to the liberals. But. To the liberals. Okay. Um, I had a similar term pop in my head a couple of times. I think I voiced it last week. Um, constitutional crisis. Um, I didn't mean in any legal sense where perhaps, say, for example, there's a, a very tight race and then uh, constitutional legal issues need to be addressed like by the Supreme Court, a bit like what happened in 2000. I didn't mean in that sense. I was thinking that it's more like a constitutional crisis in, in the most fundamental sense of what uh, the U.S., stands for as it you know as, as the culture or the, the country believes it stands for so just the very fact that so few people will be voting uh, Joe gave a break, breakdown earlier it's really going to be about 30-40% of the adult population just a lack of sheer lack of disengagement from the country and the system this is the one chance they have to be engaged with the America they love and they, they're not. That there, to me, that's constitutional crisis in big capital letters. The other one from the other perspective, so that's from below, if you like, and then there's the constitutional crisis from above, which I think we've seen manifest in, particularly in the last week, where it seems that um, the FBI, possibly through others higher up the chain in the U.S., have thrown a monkey in the wrench and appear to be tipping the scales in favor of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we I wrote a couple of articles about it. Is it out of the blue? Was it always intended that this rank, this thing would come up, you know, right at the death and swing it towards the one they wanted all along? I don't, I don't think so. You know, you could guess or you, yeah, you could, you could only guess at that. You could speculate, but, as it appears on the surface, it's like a battle is going on, it seems to me, between the establishment, because you can't, it's not a a monolithic thing, the establishment. There does seem to be this kind of infighting along, you know, existing political fracture lines in the US. So the obvious one is Democrat and Republican, and then there's fracture lines like, you know, Wall Street, what does Wall Street want? And then there's military-industrial people. Well, what's best for our arms industry and so on? Um, it strikes me that the fracture lines are really more pronounced than ever before. Where <clears throat> uh, it's kind of coming apart at the seams. As, um, <clears throat> I've wondered if. This is a kind of manifestation at home, back home, of the energies that might otherwise have been expended abroad, but which are being blocked or arrested by Russia, in particular, standing up to U.S. and Syria. And this sort of reverberating on, this is creating indirectly a constitutional crisis back home, which brings me back to what the whole shtick from the Democrats was when they were exposed through the DNC leaks and the WikiLeaks, um, as having rigged the election of uh, the Democratic primaries for for Hillary, 
their whole defense all summer long, we all know it has been that, well, Russia did this, Russia behind this, Russia's interfering. And I think it's a kind of a, a recognition, if you like, on their part that Russia has interfered in the U.S. election. It is subverting it, but in a completely indirect way. It's done it merely by asserting its own rights and influence in its own part of the world. Um, and indirectly, it has completely, not completely, but significantly um, subverted this U.S. election, I think. Well, I think that your, your term here, the constitutional crisis, is really apt. Like, it's just really apt to all of the, the situations. I mean, from my perspective, which is more cultural, part of the, the problem of the way America has been behaving, at least for a good the last, you know, say, for instance, 50 years or so or more, has really been kind of just the cowardice of the American people towards their own government, the kind of unwillingness to to make any kind of sacrifices, the sort of big temper tantrums that they've been throwing, the the self-indulgence, the... Sometimes, you know, the unchecked greed, you know, through the 80s and this, this sort of optimism, this exceptionalism, this lack of moral responsibility. So it, there's a, the constitution of the American people. They just seem to ab absolutely incapable of, of taking on responsibility, of, of, uh, of having realistic views of the world and, and pragmatic applications to policy calling down politicians or doing anything. They've just been completely children and infantile. And you can see that, that America, like when it's dealing with Russia quite often, it's, I mean, they're throwing temper tantrums. I mean, Sarah Powers just stomps out of the UN or whatever it is. Well, Vitaly Cherkin is talking. I mean, this childish infantile behavior, which has been kind of cultivated in, in, in America and, and largely in the West. And in a certain sense, you know, Russia and, and Putin have kind of been this strong man, kind of, you know, this sort of very, you know, vigorous kind of like political stance. And he's the bear and he's out hunting and all this stuff. And you have this sort of uh, comparison between the sort of uh, the, the, the weak and flabby, you know, great white hype that is that has become the West. Uh, and so it is a con literally the physical constitution. If you were to kind of imagine the American people as sort of this sort of political body, they're 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 sickly and neurotic, and um, you know sometimes entitled and is you know throwing these sort of crybaby tantrums on the world stage. Oh, we're exceptional and we're a hegemon, and oh my god, look what Putin's doing in China. And they're just sort of like, you know, crying this whole time. Obama gave his last <sighs> TV interview yesterday and Thank God. Uh, he went out. Uh, let me just remind you, we are an indispensable nation. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like what Tywin Lannister said. Right? Any king that says I am king is no true king. <laughs> and America going around saying we're the best has basically been because uh, for, for a while now, I think that they've they've lost the title of the best. They've lost the moral high ground for, for, for quite a while, actually. If, if they ever really had it, maybe they had it a bit, but they've definitely lost it, um, in, in geopolitics. And they've just, and, and I kind of see this again constantly as this sort of manifestation of the inherent sort of character flaws mm -hmm. and the, the unwillingness to, to, uh, 
work on self-improvement in America while, while obsessing about this whole navel-gazing human potential BS that you had in the 60s and the campus radicals and all these sort of nutbags. So, oh, yeah, we're just going to do transcendental meditation and expanding my consciousness with LSD and all that BS. Instead of actually getting down and doing the real work of sort of developing sort of emotional resilience and intelligence and perspicacity and not being so freaking gullible, having a little bit of guile when it comes to politics. But instead, you know, they just sort of, you know, had their little hug sessions and they're I'll scream into a pillow and this is all therapy and let me, you know, sort of pat my internal child on the on the head and everything's going to be okay. And it's developed a culture that has no constitution. It has no stomach for hard decisions. It has no ability to, to check its spending, to check its, its wastefulness. It constantly wants more and more and more. It's, you know, more sugar candies and just, you know, stuffing it down. So, I mean, you can see America as a petulant child right now. And it's, it's developed like that, you know, you know, from the, from the, at least the fifties onward. They definitely starting in the 60s and this whole culture of moral relativism and the destruction of the, the family, destruction of the state, destruction of, you know, religion and any kind of unity and traditional bonds in America has led to this. You know, I mean, it was ripe for the picking for, for psychopaths. Exactly. Because they love this kind of this. It's, more. it's the environment in which they thrive. Because everyone's like, I don't know if what he's doing is wrong. Maybe it's right. You know, maybe maybe he was hurt as a kid. Oh yeah. Well, hold on a second. He just committed a crime. <laughs> Deal with him. <laughs> yeah, you know. I mean, you have that in America, and it's like no one takes responsibility for themselves or their country. I mean, they have, they have this jingoistic patriotism. It's all like I love the flag, and they start crying when they when they say the, the sing the national anthem and stuff like that. That's not patriotism. Patriotism is taking responsibility political responsibility for the things that are being done in your name. Now that's what patriotism exactly. is. Exactly. That was outlined by that speech we watched earlier this week by Trey Gowdy. Yeah. Now he's, he's a guy who knows this and tries his best to at least communicate it. Which is, which is why I like Gowdy. He's one of my, he's one of my favorite sort of politicians right now. He, you know, I'm, I'm so, you know, jaded that I kind of wonder because if maybe he's just all lying because it all sounds a little bit too good to be true. He's just a little bit too virtuous <laughs> sometimes. And, you know, but, but yeah, the thing is, is the world needs more people who are willing to at least make a very sincere effort to live the message that they preach. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause everyone's talking about American values and Western values and I, we, you and I have talked about it and I say Western values are really actually quite great. It would be nice if the West actually kind of wasn't so hypocritical about it and actually embodied and worked towards those values. Then maybe it kind of would be a whole lot better. Oh, I say Western values are a great idea. Yeah. If so people would implement them, mm-hmm. but they won't because it's too much, it's too much work. Right. And that's, that's all these people. It's indolence. Like it's, it's, it's moral indolence is what it is. And it's a constitutional problem with people. It's just the absolute inability and unwillingness to just grow the F up and take some responsibility for your choices. I think what you just said, Jay, gets back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the show with our kind of our discussion of, of Trump. And I think Joe had said like, he's not, he basically doesn't live up to the image that people, um, that people want in a leader. Right. 
And I think what you just said about Gaudi is really gets to the bottom of that, where this guy, uh, he may, he even appears too virtuous. But the thing about him is, is that I think that that's the kind of person that, you know, uh, a country really needs in order to, to lead them on a path where they can instill those virtues and, and manifest those virtues. Because oh, I would be, love to vote yeah. for Trey Bowdy. Yeah. I would love him, man. I would, I would, so I would join his campaign. Like I <laughs> seriously, I love that man. So, and I think, and I think that just gets to the, to the, the dichotomy that we have about, about Western values and what's going on in the States right now, where like Neil just said, you know, Western values are a great idea. <laughs> they don't, they're not really, they're not really there. They're not really, um, I mean, all we have is the the illusion of Western values in the world stage and in America. But then you've got a guy like Trey Gowdy, and he's just one of many of people who are actually sincere and genuine. And you can see it in their in their actions, in the way they speak, and the way they carry themselves in their character. And but we so, so that's the positive is that these people exist and that these these values do exist. But they are they're kind of like in the background. They're not they're not in the forefront. They're not at the you know at the top of this pyramid of of leadership so there's no kind of moral pole that is that kind of directs the the character of the nation as a whole and I, that's just another symptom i think of that this cultural devolution that you've ta- been talking about that's been going on for at least the past 60 years is that there's no what you know there may be pockets of this of actual, you know, real Western values, but they have no no pull really when it comes to looking at the the wider culture and the wider system. There's just no place for them at this point. Well, I mean, yeah, because if you think about it, a lot of the political ideologies or the social ideologies going on are are, are basically secular religions. If you think about it, to take away God, like you know, Freudianism and all this different stuff. These different things, they're just that they, you remove Yahweh from the sort of Judaic religion, Judeo-Christian religion, and you end up kind of getting this sort of secular half the story that doesn't have the, the ideal, doesn't have the exterior motivations for, for moral exactitude, for sort of moral correctness and basically rectitude that would be kind of inspired by the the concept of an ideal authority who is all good, all loving, all powerful, whether or not that really is what it is. I mean, at least, you know, some people were trying to play around this idea of having an external ideal. But these social uh, philosophies are very sort of Christian and uh, they serve very informed by the Judeo-Christian sort of mindset because of that, you know, America and uh, the West in general is steeped in that tradition. It's kind of inescapable. But because of, you know, basically a lack of religious feeling, they thought, well, let's just, you know, let's lever God out of the equation and yet still have it with these sort of, you know, secular religions, basically, is what it is. So atheism, atheism and and materialism are basically secular, secular kind of religions that people adhere to. And they think that they're going to give them moral answers. And of course, they're not. You replace God with the government, your authorities. Yeah, God with the government or, you know. the authority. Yeah, the authority, essentially. And God is an authority, so it's the same thing. It's a fairly easy transfer over. Right, but one of the things that you kind of get with a religion is you get kind of like a magical exculpation of guilt, and which some people kind of blame, but a lot of people kind of don't realize that the human beings kind of need this sort of uh, cyclic way of expiating guilt without having to put somebody in an altar and cut their heart out or you know tear people limb from limb, kind of like with the main ads in, in Greece or 
the Aztecs and stuff like that. This sort of like this, this getting rid of blood guilt through some sort of ritual sacrifice, some sort of forced sacrifice of a person or people and stuff like that. So coming up with sort of like a clever way for people to get rid of that um, was, was, was an interesting innovation or at least an interesting factor in sort of Christianity, which allowed a lot of the progress that took place eventually. Whereas in secular religion, what you have is you have a sort of an inability to exculpate guilt without self-destruction and self-harm. So you sort of have America has half of it wants to eat itself and kill itself. It wants to die uh, because it, it has, in a certain sense, I, I always say that a lot of it has to do with the sort of economic survivor's guilt and and sort of, you know, cultural and climactic survivors guilt that the West sort of is kind of very ashamed of, of the, of the position that it is in the world. And in some senses it has a reason to be in other senses it doesn't. And the problem is, is that the materialist and the atheist way of doing things that all of these people tend to, to adhere to, especially I, I always harp on the liberals, but that's generally their kind of shtick is that they have no way to exculpate guilt without turning the knife on themselves. And, Oh, I'm so horrible. And that's why you get this sort of really, sort of nail-biting, you know, neurotic types of individuals who want to basically destroy themselves. They, they literally talk about like, oh, we need to collapse the, the Western civilization and all that different stuff. And they, they just, they have no way of coping. So, yeah, I mean, that's my, my shtick on those people. Sorry, I, I ranted on a bit. <laughs> that's all right. <clears throat> um, very interesting. Well, I, so, I just thought we would well, cover one more little bit about this, Joe. Mm -hmm. um, so a little earlier, Neil mentioned Russia being this kind of existential threat to the U.S. And uh, we had a story today on SOT by Finian Cunningham, who's been on Behind the Headlines before, uh, excellent journalist. Uh, the article was, Will there be a digital 9-11 by U.S. deep state if Trump is elected? And I just wanted to read a few quick things here from the article. He says, in recent days, American media are reporting a virtual state of emergency by the U.S. government and its security agencies to thwart what they claim are Russian efforts to incite, quote, election day cyber mayhem, end quote. In one, quote, exclusive, end quote, report by the NBC network on November 3rd, it was claimed that, quote, the U.S. government believes hackers from Russia or elsewhere may try to undermine next week's presidential election and is mounting an unprecedented effort to counter their cyber meddling, end quote. On November 4th, the Washington Post reported, quote, intelligence officials warned of Russian mischief in election and beyond. And, uh... Cunningham goes on to say that apparently the emergency security response is being coordinated by the White House, the Department of Homeland Security, the CIA, the NSA, and other elements of the Defense Department, according to NBC. Now, I think we yeah. can read this warning in one of two ways. One is, if Trump wins, you can't believe it because... It's all Russia's fault, mm -hmm. and they've been meddling with the WikiLeaks, and and Trump is uh, the Kremlin's man in uh, in Washington, and and all of this other stuff. On the other hand, you have to wonder if something may be planned in the form of uh, 
some kind of attack just to obscure the the whole um, mess that this election is and possibly bring the uh, the kind of uh, strategy or goal of undermining Russia further along. So, I mean, I mean, desperation is a stinky perfume here. You know, I mean, this, this is, this is Napoleon declaring that he's found traces of snowball. I mean, this is animal farm squared, right? This, this sort of stuff. This is, this is from NBC and NBC has kind of like gone off in this and people have kind of run away with it. And RT even had a thing on it. I mean, it was a, just a giant cartoon, you know, I mean, whether or not it's actually going to going to lead to anything. Uh, I mean, it just it's it's more of 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 uh, the Democrats kind of like doing this whole he's Putin's man and and all that sort of BS. I don't think anybody's going to fall for it, and I'm I'm fairly certain that the Russians are not intending at all to hack anything anywhere in the U.S. Oh yeah, no, probably not. No, but there was um, a major internet blackout in the U.S. about ten days ago. Right. Um, that uh, some anonymous, you know, People's Liberation Front of Cyber Nets here or whatever. It was a weird, <laughs> they really had a silly name like that. It said, we done it and we is agents of the Russian government. No, no, they didn't say that. They said, we done it, we is independent, but we did it on our own territory and sort of, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, because we're doing it as a view, with a view to launching it against the Russians in the future. Um, there have been a few other noises in this direction as well, but Joe Biden made a statement around this time to the effect that we hereby declare cyber war on Russia. Oh, Biden's on it now. Then yeah. yesterday the Russian Ministry of Defense let on that their their sites or systems or in some, were in some way interfered. Um, so this kind of stuff is, something's going on you know what's what's the strategy of it? Will it be successful? Well, probably not. But um, <clears throat> that that's an interesting leak. You know, I don't know what it means. But I mean, uh, yeah, but it was all like NBC, and still even this Cunningham guy, he's still quoting only NBC. So it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like it's really taken off. It's still sources NBC, sources NBC, sources MSNBC. You know, I mean. It's just hyping the. Yeah, but it's just hyping the the anti-Russian mm-hmm. kind of shtick that they've been on. You know, getting as much out of it as they possibly can. I mean, I put it in the same category as uh, ISIS today, supposedly saying that they were going and they were calling on uh, on their operatives to uh, slaughter Americans at the polling stations and break the ballot boxes. <laughs> they're, they're always calling for the slaughter of Americans. It's like every five minutes, uh, like, we will slaughter you in your home. I mean, come on. This is just ridiculous. And uh, they call, they want to break the ballot boxes. Break the ballot boxes over people's heads, probably. Yeah, break them over people's heads. That's what's going to happen. Like- it's going to wage a full, full-scale ground war on America yeah, on, yeah. on election day. Yeah. Targeting all the ballot boxes. Be afraid. Be it's just afraid. hilarious, you know. I mean, this is all like, this is all, this is, this is all the kind of like the, the, the Hillary supporting media is sort of like the death rattle of, mm. of a media that's just lost any and all credibility, but doesn't seem to realize that everyone knows, yeah. like the person at the party that doesn't realize that everyone knows what a, what a drama queen they are or whatever it is. And they're mm. still sort of freaking out and they trying think they're convincing everybody. They mm. think they're convincing everybody, but everyone's like, yeah, probably not. Yeah. It's a bit well, embarrassing, actually. Yeah. The, f- the funny thing about this 
is that you know in the in the third debate and before and after that the the big thing was whether Trump would accept the the results of the election or not. So everyone was harping on about uh, Trump, um, you know, not accepting the results of the election. Now, if Trump actually wins, uh, then, then well, I wonder I wonder what Hillary would do. You know, it, it doesn't really their their strategy hasn't really put them in a good position for a Trump win, because I'm sure that a lot of Democrats will then begin to contest the election because of you know Russian hacking. They're going to blame Russia on it. I just think that's a funny scenario if it plays out. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, they're kind of presenting the Trump people as the ones who are going to want to have a revolution. But, you know, I mean, the the, the Alinskyite in this particular equation is, is Hillary, not not Trump. I mean, the, the ones, you know, wanting a revolution are, are the kind of the Democrat type. So I'd, I'd be more concerned about them doing something. Yeah. Well, on that note, All folks, right. did we have anything else you wanted to add to the conversation? Not particularly. We don't want to bore people with too much election Make stuff. America great again. We're going to make America great again. Yeah, he's got, he needs to build that wall, and he's going to make Mexico pay for it. And uh, and and the trade deals with China are just absolutely horrific. I mean, the, China, China's the, the trade deficit—they're killing us in trade. And, and we're going to get out of TTIP. Uh, Hillary supported TTIP, uh, and, and Bill Clinton is a rapist, by the way. And, and just to get, and, and we're going to build a wall in America because we don't need any more of these illegal immigrants. Coming over here to these sanctuary cities, doing and, our and, jobs, and, and, and stealing our jobs. I mean, absolutely, just stealing our jobs. I mean, honest, hardworking Americans I'm gonna are put, losing out in the job market. I mean, we need to put Americans first. We're going to put Americans back to doing the jobs the Mexicans yeah, used to we're, do. We're going to take them. We're going to take Which them. Which is picking, uh, picking vegetables, uh, industrial and, plants that we done built up in in China, so that they can screw us over. We're going to bring them right over. To, we're going to airlift them with a helicopter. Uh, Trump's got plenty of helicopters. He's going to lift them up. Fly him over the ocean, probably stop in Hawaii for a luau. Then he's going to come over into probably California too, because he's he, you know he's probably going to have a party there in Los Angeles. And then they're going to start bringing him back to to the Midwest, to the to the breadbasket, to, uh, to the blue collar workers of America. He's going to and he's going to build a wall at that point, and Mexico is going to pay for it. I mean, he's really outlined how Mexico is going to pay. And we bring these, uh, we bring these, uh, these factories over from China. We're going to. Oh, he's going to airlift them in. But we're going to make sure there's no Chinese in them, right? Well, no, no, the Chinese can come too because, you know, they work real hard. (laughs) No, 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 they're immigrants. But then they'd be immigrants. Well, you know, as as long as they apply for a visa. I mean, we don't really have any problem with with the Chinese. I mean, let's be honest about who we're talking to here. We could build a wall around the... We're we're building a wall to get get the Mexicans out because they got the sweatshops, and the sweatshops are stealing jobs from from hardworking Americans, right? That's That's what we're really talking about. I mean, the real problem here is is is, is the is these Islam Islamo jihadis, right? That's the real problem here. Like this whole thing about immigration. Let's be honest about it. I mean, we don't have any problem with the Chinese coming over <laughs> there. They're, they're they're nice people. I mean, I, I like a Chinese person. You know, I mean, I like Chinese food. I've been I've been to Shaywalk and. <laughs> This political advertisement was approved by the Donald Trump campaign. <laughs> Please vote Wednesday. Make America great again. Yeah, you know. Well done, Jason. <laughs> and on that note. I'm just having fun. Yeah, well, there's a. Have a, fun, guys. A note of truth there. Several, actually. Anyway, thanks so much for joining us. Special guest star, Jason Martin. Mm-hmm. Joe, Neil. Thank you. 
Thank you, Harrison. Pleasure. Pleasure. It was fun. Have a good night. Our chatters. All right, guys. Thank you. Uh, please join us next week for another edition of Behind the Headlines or The Truth Perspective. Don't forget to check out Health and Wellness and take care, everybody. Have a good day. See you next week. Bye-bye. Build the wall. <laughs> Build the wall. Start practicing. Thank you.